So good to see you. Thanks for being here today. You'll notice this is not the normal preaching mic. Our microphone broke the, the kind of the Britney Spears mic that we normally use. Broke, and I've got the handheld today, but it's fine. I grew up Pentecostal, so it's a vibe, you know. My name's Eric again. So glad to be here. We are, uh, and what a gift it is to, to gather. We're going to open up our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of a hard book to find. Go to the middle, you find Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I had to remind myself of that when we started the series, even though I do this for a living, and uh, it's okay, safe place. Today we are going to consider the theme of work. We're going to think about our work today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. If you don't have one, there's some folks that have that for you. But we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Usually I have you stand when uh, I read the text, but you're going to want to sit for this. It's good. It's good news. But, but listen to this. This is, this is a text not just that we'll read, but that will read us. And it is God's grace to us today. So hear these words. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better, though, for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. How you doing? When your friends tell you that the Bible has nothing to say about modern life and our cultural moment, perhaps send them to the second half of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. That's for free. That's it. I just wanted you to know that. You've got options when they say that. I want to talk to you today about work and toil. The main character of the 2002 film about Schmidt, anybody? It's Warren Schmidt, played by the absolute legend Jack Nicholson. In the film, after retirement, Schmidt looks back on his life as an actuary for an Omaha insurance agency, and he realizes in reflection that he has little to show for all of his hard work. And he expresses this in a reflective letter that he writes, ironically, to the needy child that he sponsors in a distant, impoverished nation. He writes these words. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things. 
And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Once I am dead and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of, none at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. I want to talk to you again about work and toil. The title of this sermon is When Work Becomes Toil. Not if, but when. Perhaps we'll even consider how. So what is work? Well, we know what work is. Work is chores. Work is uh, parenting. Work is what you do to get through high school, college, and graduate school. Work is gardening. It's yard work. Work is what you do five days a week or perhaps more in a corporate office on Meadows or in downtown Portland or what you do for four to six days in your living room with a tie and a nice um, dress shirt, but really you're wearing sweatpants because it's a special Zoom. You know what I'm talking about. You've done it. I'm going to talk about work today. Work is coaching young athletes. Work is, the, is what we do to serve our Christian communities. We know what work is, but I want to talk a little bit about toil today. We know what toil is. The best definition I found of toil is that toil is troublesome work. Not just work, but frustrating work. And we've all experienced that. The text that, I look at, that we looked at today, that we read, is it's a text, as I said earlier, that reads us. Because it really describes our shared experience in this life. And isn't it a profound kindness that the God of the universe who inspired the biblical writers would would talk about life and work and toil as it actually is. And so this morning we're going to explore what we have to learn from God so that we can turn our eyes to him who's making all things new. Okay, so work and toil, when work becomes toil. What I want to do to start today is I want to talk to you about the inherent goodness of work and then we'll turn to the inherent frustration of work. And finally, we'll consider a few different shifts that we can make in our life so that we can gain God's perspective and God's vision and heart for all of this. Okay, you with me? Let's start with the inherent goodness of work. I need to tell you something that's incredibly important, okay? From the beginning, men and women were working. From the beginning. Can you do me a favor this morning? Can we turn in our Bibles to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1? And I want to give you, for just a few short minutes, I want to give you what we'll call a theology of work and its inherent goodness. So the scriptures begin with God and his creation, all that is. And all that is comes from the loving and sovereign triune God. And the highest point of creation we know is humanity, human beings made in the image of God. And there was, there actually was a time when humans lived in this sort of loving and unbroken relationship with God before sin fractured that relationship. 
And I think what happens is sometimes people imagined that before sin or what we often call the fall, the first, the first humans were living in sort of vacation mode for however long that was. Eating grapes, sipping drinks, play, playing some kind of prehistoric form of pickleball. Or I don't know. We don't, you know. That's what we just imagined them in, in vacation mode. Stress-free, just, just sort of just sort of sitting on the beach. But that is not the story that the scriptures actually give us. In Genesis 1.26, it describes human beings and their sort of first assignment in this way. It says this in 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Genesis 2 is sort of a retelling of that origin story. And listen to what the writer says here in chapter 2, verses 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So before rebellion, before deception, before there was shame, before there was broken and fractured relationships, there was work. People were working with God. And work was a divine assignment from God. There they are in the story, working and keeping the gracious gift of God that we call Eden. And you'll notice that the writer of Genesis talks about work and he uses phrases like having dominion over creation. And he says that immediately after he announces that human beings are made in the image of God. And so what we learn in the beginning of the scriptures is that God is a working God. And work is his gracious gift of partnership. God didn't create minions. God didn't create slaves. He's no taskmaster. He created partners for loving collaboration because his good world was made with untapped potential. And so we wanted artists and cultivators and stewards to take the raw material of earth and to make something out of it, to make homes, to make families, to make art, to innovate, to maximize, and all of this for his glory and our good. And so work was and is inherently good. And we might say, well, well, not all forms of work, and, and certainly that is true, but work comes to us in the beginning of the scriptures, in the beginning of the story of God, work comes to us as an assignment from God himself. Not a necessary evil, but part of what is called the creation mandate. And the truth is, is there are all kinds of work that is good work. It's not just work that's sort of done in the church or done by professional Christians. All sorts of work are sort of under this idea of what we call the creation mandate. Dorothy Sayers was a writer in the first half of the 20th century, and in particular, she wrote during World War II, and she's had a lot to say about work and about its sort of God-given nature. And one of the things that she hated the most was what we call the sacred-secular divide that we put on work, where some work can be done for God and some 
cannot. Sayers believe that work is good because it comes from God. And so because of that, our work should be good work. And whatever it is, it should be done for the God who gave us the opportunity to do it. And so she writes this about work. I want you to track with this quote. This is profound. She says this. She says, we should ask of enterprise not, will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods, not can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? Of employment, not how much a week, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? Work is good because God is good. And we are made in his image and he has given us this assignment to partner with him. And so the answer to what kinds of work is good is all kinds of work. Philip Jensen writes, he says, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. All kinds of work is good. Because God is good. And that's the story we're invited to, even in the beginning of the biblical text. But you and I know, you and I know, that work is perhaps the place where we experience the brokenness of our world the most, don't we? It's where some of our greatest disappointments come. And the creation story goes on from saying that work is good to tell us what actually happens to work when we rebel against our maker. What happens is when God lovingly seeks out Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve after their sin, he tells them the painful reality that the consequences of their sin is that work, which he gave them to do, will, be now, will now be profoundly different than it was before. The work of childbearing will be painful. He tells the man that the ground he will work is now cursed because of him. And so work is now troublesome. It's toil. It's laborious. God says to the man, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And that's when work became toil. And it was not always so. And one commentator, when they talk about Ecclesiastes, what is the purpose of the book, one, of the, one commentator said that Ecclesiastes describes work after Eden and before heaven. And wouldn't you know that that brings us right back into the text that we've read this morning. Can you turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2? I want to talk with you about the inherent frustration of work. And I'll try not to be overly depressing as we do that. But we have to, we have to go where this text actually takes us. There is an inherent frustration in our efforts, even our best ones. You feel it. I feel it. All, all kinds of work. There's an impermanence to our work. It's an enigma. But the truth is, is we make it worse than it has to be, don't we? When we look back in our text in chapter 2, verses 18 of Ecclesiastes, this is what the preacher says, because he knows what's up. 
He says this, he says, I hated all my toil, all my troublesome work in which I toil under the sun. Now we just have to pause for just a second because, and then we'll read on, but, but for just a second, what does that phrase under the sun mean? It's really important that we understand it. Under the sun is not literally work that is done outside. The phrase under the sun is about human wisdom and endeavors apart from God. And it's about the inherent frustration that comes when men and women turn their backs on their creator. This is, this is actually what Ecclesiastes is all about. That there's an inherent, inherent frustration when we turn from God into something else. And I know you feel it. And I feel it. Some of you right now are here and you're feeling it supremely. And I need to tell you something today. Before we go further, I just need to tell you something. God will not force you to surrender to him. But he is loving enough to frustrate you and to bother you until you do. The preacher has been laboring under the sun and it's awful. It sucks. He hates it. That's what he's telling us. And the reason it is, is because he knows that even if he wins, even if he's successful, he's going to have to give it all away. He's going to have to give it all away. Listen how he goes on in verse 18. He says, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Notice that phrase that comes back, under the sun. This also is vanity. He says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors. What labors? Labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What he's talking about here, he's talking about inheritance. He's talking about the reality that he can't take any of this stuff where he's headed. He's like, I know I'm going to have to give this to somebody, to a kid a business partner. Maybe the things that he's accumulated, it will be taken from him. Maybe he'll lose them. All sorts of outcomes. And who knows what whoever gets his stuff is going to actually do with it. Will they even appreciate what he's done and the work he's done? Have you ever been to an estate sale? Okay, so my wife and son are thrifters, so they see it as an opportunity, but to me, it's an existential crisis. <laughs> because here you are, walking through someone's house. Why? Because they died. That's why you're there. And you're walking, I'm, it's what it is. You're walking through their house, and you're, you're evaluating their life and the things that mattered the most to them. You walk through the house and you snicker at the $50 price tag on a putter from 1975. Or you walk through their garage and you're like, who needs three lawnmowers? You're, ev you're evaluating the things that mattered most to this person. So those things throughout the estate sale, maybe a few weekends, they'll sell everything they can until the house is full of things that no one wants. And so they call, I don't know, Goodwill, 
What's it called? 1-800-JUNK? Is that what it's called? <laughs> Some just take this. Just get rid of it. And what happens, what's sold after that is the house. It's just otherwise a storage unit for all these things that now matter to no one. And that's what he's talking about. That's the crisis that the preacher, the writer of this text, that's what the preacher, that's what's keeping him up all night because he knows that not only does he have all this stuff, but he knows how he got all this stuff by working and laboring and toiling under the sun, which is to work and toil apart from God and is keeping him up at night. What's keeping you up at night? There was once a king, a wise king, and a king who built up a kingdom in magnificent ways. It's almost like a startup kingdom. And he built a palace for himself. He built a temple for his deity. He was ambitious and resourceful, motivated and creative. He was an entrepreneur in the truest of ways. But sadly, his hands were not clean. And many times, the, the means justified the ends. And he built great things, but he built them on the backs of slaves. And he sought expansion, but was corrupted by the power that he gained. So like many leaders, he was a mixed bag of success and failures, fidelity and infidelity, service and corruption, wisdom and vanity, and when he died, he left all of his kingdom and earnings to his oldest son, because that's what you do. And certainly in his dying days, he wondered if his son would be wise with his inheritance, which he had contributed nothing to. And sadly and tragically, the son was not. And he was such a fool that he lost 10 twelfths of his father's kingdom in a short time. And who was this son? His name was Rehoboam, and his father was King Solomon, who this book we're studying right now is attributed to. Some have argued that Solomon may have wrote these things down at the end of his life as he's growing old, as he's looking back, full of a number of things, but certainly regret and shame. And all the while he's wondering, what that I've built is actually going to last? Wondering, I'm going to pass this on to one of my offspring. What are they going to do with it? Perhaps Solomon is writing these words and he knows the estate sale that is his life is coming soon. And none of this stuff is going to come with him. But the truth is in this text... And in our experience, it's not, it's not just about the stuff we get from our work, right? We're talking about legacy. Not just about things and possessions. It's about the work itself. This text brings us to this reality. We have very little control of what comes of all of our efforts. Even if that work has been for good things and our hands are clean, maybe largely even good endeavors don't have guaranteed outcomes. Relationships deteriorate. Churches shrink down to a dozen or so people and they close because they can't keep the lights on. Schools close down. Banks close. We know this now. Banks close. 
Nonprofits lose steam as the staff gets burnt out and donors back out and then neighborhoods begin to suffer. Do I need to go on? I don't, do I? So the question is, what, is, what do we do as we face the reality that is inescapable? How do we respond to the uncertainty that is our actual life? How do we respond to what the Hebrew writer here would call the hevel of work? Hevel is the Hebrew word that is sometimes translated as impermanence or an enigma or emptiness or uncertainty or a vapor. Or the word hevel is, it's almost like a mist that you can't grasp in your hands because as soon as you try to grasp it, it slips out in a way. How are we going to respond to the hevel of our work, even our best work, our best efforts and endeavors are often toil? and troubling. And the writer here tells us that that will lead to two different outcomes. There are actually two outcomes that can happen. And we know what what happened to him, utter despair. But there's another outcome that could happen. And this is sort of, this is the plot twist. This is the beauty of this writing here. There is another outcome and you didn't see it coming but I'll put it to you in a single word. Joy. Despair or joy. Here he pauses from his sort of diatribe to to bring some light into our situation. Look at this with me. You, you, You have got to see this. Verse 24. After all of that, Knowing one of his kids is going to get his kingdom and probably squander it. He says this. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find what? Enjoyment. Joy in his toil. This also I saw is from who? God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. I don't know if you noticed this, but a profound thing just happened in our text. God showed up. When you read Ecclesiastes, God is strangely absent and it's intentional. Because the preacher is doing something. The preacher is, the preacher is telling us and he's committed to showing us the futility of life when we're not surrendered to our maker. But he also gives us a glimpse of what is possible when we are. And so he pauses here from this diatribe which reads like the lyrics of a 90s emo song from an Eastside Portland band. And he takes us into a higher reality, a necessary reality that is equally true. And it is this, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Why can you have joy in this life? How is that even possible given the grim assessment and analysis of life on earth? Well, because your life is held in the hands of the great giver. And his desire is to work in you and to go to work with you and to bless you in that. Whatever that work is, even when it's toil, God can meet you there and he can bless you there. 
But that tension that the writer brings us into, that tension is hard to hold. That tension of toil and the fact that we don't know what's going to happen and joy, that is hard and sometimes feels even impossible for us to hold together. I love what the scholar Elizabeth Hugh Willer said. She said this, she said, the preacher clings tenaciously to both claims. All life is hebel or vanity. And yet joy is both possible and good. It is important to not make one of these claims the only message of the book and dismiss the other as either a distraction or a grudging qualification. Koheleth, the preacher, insists on both and often in the same passage which is what we just read. The reality of despair and the particular weight of despair that can happen when we turn our backs on our maker, but also the possibility of joy when we surrender to him. We are meant, we are built to hold that tension in our hands. So the question for you today is this, where else are you gonna get joy? Where are you going to get it? You actually need it. Where are you looking for it? Who are you hoping will give it to you? And how's that going? Verse 25 says, For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And joy comes as we surrender every aspect of our lives to God in trust. And it's when we receive all of our life, especially, I think, our work and even our toil, even that is a gift from him. So how are we to walk in what the biblical writers call the joy of the Lord? How are we going to actually do that? Let's, let's close this way. I want to talk about three different shifts that we must choose to make as followers of Jesus. We're gonna, these are three shifts that are intentional and, and really necessary for us to move from sort of despair to joy. And the first is this. I need you to listen to me, okay? We need to shift from careerism to vocation. Let me explain that to you. There's a fantastic book called The Second Mountain. Anyone? No? Okay, none of you. By David Brooks, who's a phenomenal writer. And uh, he, in this book, he talks about the difference between a career and a vocation. And essentially what he says is that the first mountain, the book's called The Second Mountain, he says that the first mountain of a person's life is when they pursue a career. Perhaps they try to make a name for themselves. Perhaps they're trying to prove wrong the teacher or the parent in our youth that questioned our abilities and our work ethic and their life is lived sort of to prove that they were in fact wrong. He says that the first mountain is about achievement and success. It's about breaking down walls. It's about getting mine. But then what happens is a tragedy strikes, a failure, a burnout, a company folds, a divorce happens. A lawsuit comes, bankruptcy. He says what happens is you find yourself in a, in a valley of sorts, a desert. You're now off the first mountain. And he says that many get stuck there. And he says the temptation is to try to sort of like, like, you know, go after it again. 
and ascend the first mountain another time. But Brooks describes this as a futile and vain pursuit. And Brooks writes that few ascend what he calls the second mountain, which is where rather than sort of getting ours and getting our life, we begin to give our life away. And so a vocation is, a, is not about achieving, but about surrendering, surrendering your life. When you begin to ask questions like, how can I be most useful to God and his kingdom? So that you might actually have something to give. And the story, it's such a remarkable story is, is because in the middle of the story, Brooks has this very, very unlikely conversion to Christianity. And it's, it's an amazing read. But some of us, we get stuck in careerism where we are worshiping a job or a promotion or tenure or whatever we can get from our work. But you know you have found your vocation when you actually want to give your life away. Not take, but give. You might find when you find your vocation that you're doing the exact same things, but with an entirely different motivation. The second shift that I want to talk about that's essential and it's in, it's, it's in the text and it may not surprise you, but the second shift is from despair to gratitude. Some of us, we want to go straight from despair to joy, but it doesn't exactly work that way, does it? And I know that some of you have experienced and right now are experiencing profound loss and disappointment. I know some of you have been dragged into court. You've been deceived. You've been pushed out of your place of work. You've watched people get credit for your hard work. And I know that some of you have been incredibly successful. You've gotten one win after the next. But you're still up at night. Wondering if and when this whole thing's going to come crashing down. And that's where we are. But the truth is, whether we're in the desert or on, to use Brooks's language, the first mountain, there's a better way. And the way is gratitude. Gratitude is the gateway to joy. Gratitude is when we worship God, not for what we get from him, but for who he is. For who can have enjoyment apart from him? Gratitude is the gateway to joy. And the third shift that I want to talk about today, and this is the hardest, so I saved it from the, for the end. The third shift is this. Shift is a word you've got to be really careful with in public speaking. From control to the surrendering of outcomes. Think about that. Isn't this what's happening in the text right now? So if I'm hanging on to my job, my possessions, my kids, and my future with as much control as possible, then whatever I'm feeling, it certainly isn't going to be joy. But if I surrender outcomes, then joy is not even, not even just that it's possible, 
but it's inevitable. Even when life looks like a failure. Two of the most famous and remembered Christians of the last 100 years were executed at the age of 39. Dr. Martin Luther King was working for justice and it was hard work and it was seemingly impossible work. It was troublesome work. It was good work and it was toil and it cost him his life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer opposed the demonic regime that was the Third Reich and he opposed it in the name of Jesus and sought to bring reform to the corruption that had took over the church in Germany. And he was imprisoned and taken to the gallows just days before the Nazis surrendered. And we imagine what they could have accomplished with more years. Rather than, than thinking about the most profound thing, their lives were surrendered to God. Come what may. Come what may. And how about that carpenter from Nazareth who revealed to us the heart of God who only ministered publicly for three short years but has literally changed the whole of history. His life was completely and perfectly surrendered to his heavenly father empowered by the Holy Spirit. He did not take up his life but gave it as a ransom to many and in his darkest hour he prayed, not my will, but yours. And didn't he accomplish the greatest work of all? Our salvation, our redemption, our freedom purchased even as he took on the most toil and troubling work of all, the cross. How was he able to do it? Because of the joy set before him. And so I want to end today, I'll invite the band to come up. I want to end today with a promise to you. If you surrender every part of your life to Jesus, including and perhaps today even especially your work, your kids, your possessions, your hopes, your desired outcomes. If you surrender those to Jesus, it's going to be worth it. I love what my old pastor used to say. He would tell, I remember when he would tell us this, he said, the reward of following Jesus is Jesus. When we surrender our lives to Christ, we get everything that is his, which is joy everlasting. I'm reminded of this psalmist in Psalm 127, coincidentally, the only psalm that was written by King Solomon. He said this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. But hear this promise. He gives to his beloved sleep. Or how about the words of Jesus himself? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, worn out by your toil and your work. And his promise to us is rest. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you that you've shown us another way. Thank you that you've given us your word today. We come each week to this space, to these people, to these moments, to ask you for help. To ask you for help in surrendering our lives to you. We pray, Lord, that you would transform us. Transform our efforts so that we stop worshiping the things that we do and the things that we accomplish. And we begin to worship the one who has saved us, who has raised us, who has filled us with hope and purpose. We look to you today, King Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Have your way in us. If our hands are clenched right now, we open them to you. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, somebody say it. Amen. Hey, will you stand with me this morning?